if you would like to know more about short-term opportunities, we invite you to stop at those tables out there. Get to know what those ministries do, what they represent. Find out if they have some opportunities for you to join them for a few weeks or even longer than that. Or contact our worldwide missions department here and we'd be happy to give you more information. I heard this week about a man who went to the doctor to do a consult about his wife. You see, his wife, he felt, was growing um, in her loss of hearing. And he was concerned, uh, you know, how bad this was getting and what he should do about it. So the doctor said to him, I think you need to go home and just find out how bad her hearing is. Walk in the door, say something to her, and if she doesn't respond, then move in increments closer and closer until you figure out where she can actually hear you and then come back and we'll figure out really how serious the situation is. So he went home and he walked in the door and he said, dear, what's for dinner tonight? No answer. Sadly, he took a few more steps into the house. Dear, what's for dinner tonight? Sadly, no answer. He kept making increments of steps until he was two feet away from her. And he said, dear, what is for dinner tonight? Finally, she responded, for the 11th time, Harry, I said meatloaf. It is hard, it's hard to get old. And everybody says that it's natural. It's natural that things aren't always gonna work the right way. It's natural that you're going to you know, experience uh, changes in your body as you get older, and it's natural you're gonna die. But there's something in us that tells us that it's not natural. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't seem right. And that's why we spend billions and billions of dollars trying to cure death. <laughs> that's why we spend billions of dollars trying to prolong it and billions of dollars buying cosmetics and having surgeries of all sorts to at least make us look younger than we really are, though inevitably we are all aging, we're all going to die. And yet we so resist it. Why is that? The answer is found in Revelation 21 in our last message of our series in Revelation. If you missed out, you can go online and catch up on some of the themes that we looked at, but turn open to Revelation chapter 21 And let me read with you verses one through eight. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older order of things has passed away. He who sat on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost in the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. 
But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fire lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, in that passage of Scripture, the word new is used four different times. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Behold, I'm making all things new, or I'm making everything new. In the Greek language, there are two words for new in biblical Greek. The first is naos. Naos means new in terms of time, so a newborn baby. But, you know, a year from the birth, you don't really call that child a newborn anymore. Or a new year, but in July, you don't still call it a new year. Or newlyweds, but two or three years in marriage, you're not really newlyweds anymore. Why? Because time has gone by, and... With time, things fade. With time, things diminish. With time, things weaken. Things become dim. Time takes a toll on everything. And everything begins to fade. We experience that. We know all about that. We resist it. We don't like it. We struggle with it. We try to preserve it. But it happens to all of us. There's also another word in the Greek for new, and it's kainos. K-A-I-N-O-S, kainos. Kainos means new in terms of quality. For instance, brightness that stays bright or strength that stays strong. The essence of kainos is God himself. For the Bible tells us that God is the ancient of days. He's the ancient of ancients. That is, he's always been. There's no one older than God. And yet God is always new because God is timeless. He has no beginning and he has no end. And you and I, we have been created in the image and the likeness of God. Which begs the question, if I'm created in the image and likeness of God, why am I not kainos? (laughs) Why do I fade? Why don't I stay strong? Why don't I stay bright? Why don't I stay new all the time? And the answer is found in the scriptures. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Would you read it aloud with me? When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And we all know that to be true because we're all sinners. We know that about ourselves. And the Bible says that the consequences, the results of our sin is death and the death process that takes place in our lives. And it's spread to all of us because all die, all die, except for Enoch and Elijah, whom the Bible says God took up to himself. One was there, Enoch one day, and gone the next. God took him home. Elijah was picked up by the fiery chariot. But all the rest of us, all the rest of us are going to die. And yet we so struggle with death. Why is that? I think the writer to Ecclesiastes helps us. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in his time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And I just want you to lock in on that phrase for a moment. He has also set eternity in the human heart. He's not set that in the heart of any other creature, any other creation, but in your heart and my heart. Even in the heart of the atheist, though he or she can ignore it and become reprobate, God can give them over to that. 
in all of us, there's this voice, God is, God is, God is. In all of us, there's a sense that it's not natural to die. I was meant for more than this. There's eternity born into our very hearts and our very lives. And the Bible makes it clear that someday we're going to realize that in our lives. Someday we're going to experience no more death, no more aging. Listen to what it says in, for instance, Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 18, it says, but forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I'm going to do. For I'm about to do something new. Come down to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Look, I'm creating new heavens and new earth. No one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I rejoice of Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Now we know that's prophetic because... Jerusalem is not a place of happiness, not a place of joy these days with all the controversies there. Then Romans chapter 8, very significant passage beginning at verse 18, worth your writing it down and reading it later. Romans 8, 18, and all the way to 25. Yet what we suffer, Paul says, now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. There it is. For we know that all creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait for, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How many are looking forward to the new body? I am, all right. Some of you weren't sure. That's scary. All right, verse 24. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something that we don't have, we must wait patiently and confidently. guess one way to summarize that is to simply say this, that God has promised to make all things new. Hallelujah for that. But I can imagine somebody saying, that's great, that's good for the future, but how about now? Why can't we have some newness now? Why can't we experience newness today? And I've got good news for you, and that is that God has promised to make all things new, and it starts right now. It does start right now. A lot of you are undergoing renewal, and maybe you're not even aware of it. The renewal, the newness I'm talking about, is not outward, though it certainly can be manifested outwardly. You can tell something's going on. It's inward. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, would you read it with me? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Can you say that to yourself, to your own heart? Can you testify to the fact that something new has started and is going on in your life? Now, you can slow it down. You can do what Paul says. You can grieve it. You can quench it. But are you aware that something new is happening in your life? And are you drawing from that newness in your life? I want to read to you 
fascinating passage of scripture. Again, find in Romans chapter eight. So y'all ought to read Romans eight later today. Look what it says in verse nine and keep track of how many times it talks about new or I should say how many times it talks about God living in us. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the spirit if you have the spirit of God, what? Living in you, one, next verse. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them, two, do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you, three. So even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The spirit of God who raised Jesus the dead, four, lives in you. Next passage. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he would give life to your mortal bodies by his same spirit, number five, living within you. Now, when does this happen? When does this living in me happen? The moment I receive Christ in my life by faith, by putting my faith in Jesus. The spirit comes to indwell me. Now, I have a choice then. I can either live out of his presence in my life or I can choose to try to live my own, to live the Christ life in my own strength. I can either choose to live out of the presence of Christ in my life, or I can let what happens to me in life control me and, and affect me. How about you right now? Where, where are you in all of that? Are you living out of the fountain of his presence? Or are you living in reaction to all the things that are happening to you? Are you trying to live off the energy of the world, which is very toxic these days? Which is it? It's a fascinating story in John chapter 5. Jesus meets a man who's by the pools of Bethesda. The man has been lame, I think it's for 38 years. And Jesus asks him a very strange question. Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? Now, doesn't that sound strange to you? If you walked up to a person who had cancer, would you ask them, do they want to be made well? Of course they want to be made well, right? You would think sick people want to get better, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, whatever it is, you would assume people want to get better. So why does Jesus say, do you want to be made well? Because not everybody wants to be made well. And I pondered that. I thought a lot about that. Because I know it's true. I know it's psychologically true. Why is it we, we don't always want to be made well? And I think the answer is because we don't always want the responsibilities of being well. Sometimes it's just easier to have everybody feel sorry for us, to live off self-pity. Sometimes it's easier to live with something that's been in our life for a long, long time. Even though we hate it, we complain about it, than to try to get used to living a new way choosing a new attitude, having a different perspective on life that healing brings to us, whether it's outward or inner healing that takes place in our lives. But the question is for you and me, do I want to live out of the newness that God has given to me or do I want to still you know, behave like I don't have anything new happening in me? Do I want to live out of that newness or do I want to let the world affect me? Do I want to choose to forgive or remain unforgiving? Do I want to choose to be hopeful or do I want to be pessimistic? Do I want to choose to be kind or do I want to choose to be grumpy? I struggle with it. Do you struggle with it? To live out of the spirit? And one of my biggest struggles is I have a habit of trying to reform myself. I want to be like Christ, but what I do is I try to make my sinful nature like Christ, and I always hit the wall, and it hurts. 
How about you? I try to change myself instead of drawing out from the Spirit's presence in my life, which is very different, which is very, very different. A lot of us are trying to live the Christ life in our own strength, and we get discouraged by it because we end up failing as a result of it. Colossians 1.27 puts it this way, or excuse me, 3.10 says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So the question is, am I becoming like him? Paul reemphasizes this again in Colossians. He says, and this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So one of the things that I think the Lord did for me recently is I've been praying about this in my own life because I try never to preach a sermon to you that I don't wrestle with in my own life is, is God gave me the picture of a flame, an ember that grows into a flame. And I, and I see that representing his spirit and I see that in me. And the, and the question I keep having to ask myself is am I going to draw Am I going to draw strength for life out of me, my, my flesh, my, my efforts, or the world around me, God forbid? Or am I going to draw strength out of that flame? Am I going to let him, in other words, consume me? Remember the story of Moses? He runs into a bush, and it's a burning bush. What makes it burn is God's presence. It doesn't burn up, but God has consumed that bush. So the question is, do I want to draw out of me or do I want to draw from this flame? And do I want this flame to become a fire that consumes me? Do I want to live in and out of his presence? Defer to him, surrender control to him. How about you? I'm telling you, you may not have a new body yet. We may not be in the new heaven and new Jerusalem yet. But you've got something new going on inside of you right now. And it is the presence of God living in you. And that gives us the capacity then to, to go and do something remarkable. And that is, as his followers, to spread the good news. News. I get to go and tell people that in this old world with everything decaying and falling apart outwardly, inwardly, that God wants to do something new right now, that heaven is coming, yeah, they'll have a new body someday, but God wants to do something new in them right now. He wants to put his presence, his supernatural presence, into their very being, into their guts, so to speak. And they can begin to experience the newness that will eventually lead to an entire transformation, even bodily speaking. Even bodily speaking. And so tie that into this verse from Matthew chapter 24. It says, and the good news, right? And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. Now watch this. this is, what a great way to close our series on Revelation. So that all nations will hear it then the end will come. Man, you got everything here. You got the new, you got the book of Revelation, right? And you've got missions. It's all tied together. In essence, what God is saying is, look, until I call you home, I've left you here to share this newness with others, this good news of newness. And when the whole world hears about it, then I'm, then I'm coming back. Then I'm coming back. And that's your responsibility. Well, who do we take this newness to? Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John tells us here in 
the end of Revelation, that Jesus speaks to him, Jesus says in verse 6 that it belongs to the thirsty. He says, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. I've got, I've got water for the thirsty, water that will, that will quench your thirst, this newness I want to bring to you. Now be careful because verse 8 says this. It says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars are going to be consigned to hell. Be careful with that. It does not mean they're going to hell because they're liars, because they're sexually immoral, because they're idolaters, etc. We're all sinners. They're consigned to hell because they do not thirst for God. They thirst for their own desires. In Revelation, we met people who, even though God is speaking to them and God's judgment is being un unleashed and they see it, they don't repent. They raise their fist to God and they hate him all the more. And there are people like that in life. They don't want God. Even God would say, here I am. They don't want God because they want life on their own terms. They're not thirsty. But there are those who are thirsty. And one of the most beautiful pictures of that is found in John in John chapter 4, when Jesus, it says, had to go out of his way to a well in Samaritan territory where no Jew would go. The Samaritans were heretics. They hated each other. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. But Jesus had to go, and he had to go to a well outside of a village in Sychar. And at that well, he met a woman who had multiple affairs. In fact, the man she was living with now wasn't even her own husband. And he met her for a reason, because she was thirsty. And he promised her water that would quench her thirst forever. And it led to a conversation and a changing of her life. So the question is, who are the thirsty people in your life? Who are the thirsty people in my life? That God has called us to bring this, this hope, this satisfaction, this newness to transform them.